Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Let's open to 1 Samuel chapter 26 as we continue in this uh, long and um, informative and insightful journey that God took David on as, as we continue to look at our lives through the lens of what God did through him. It's 1 Samuel 26. If you need a Bible, you can grab one from the ushers. You can open up your mobile device. Um, and if all else fails, you can follow along on the screen, but you can't underline that. You can't see where it is on the page. You can't cry on it. You can't get your DNA on it. You know, I just always recommend that you have your Bible with you. But uh, 1 Samuel chapter 26 Uh, What I want to do tonight is I want to read a a rather lengthy portion as we get into it. Uh, It's kind of um, an interesting segment of David's life that we're in right now because it's kind of long. You know, the the text begins here in chapter 26 and the resolution of really what begins here doesn't happen until uh, kind of the end of chapter 30. And so we're going to kind of go over that, but we're not going to read every verse because it's like four or five chapters and it would take a while. But, uh, but I want you to hear the message. So uh, let's just pray, and then we're going to read beginning in chapter 26. We'll just, we won't read all of, it, uh, all of the whole five chapters, but I'll take you through all the way up through the first four verses of 27, and then we'll get into uh, what's going on here. And I believe God is going to speak to us tonight through his word. It's very pertinent, it's very living, it's very relevant, it's very helpful. So Father, we just, uh, again, turn our hearts to your word, and we pray that you would uh, speak through what you've revealed here. And so, Lord, you have caused each one to come to this place. You are over who is watching from home. You are over even who will hear this in the future. And we just pray right now in Jesus' name that you would anoint your word, that you would make it live, that you would make it powerful, that you would make it the sharp sword that helps us. And we pray tonight that Jesus, you would make yourself known in these things. Thank you, Lord. Make yourself known in the things going on in our lives through what we read here. And we pray that your spirit be very present, that your presence would be here. So we ask for these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's follow David, chapter 26, verse 1. It says, in the Ziphites, we've met them before. Uh, They blew David's cover once, and now they're going to blow David's cover again. It says that the Ziphites came to Saul to Gibeah, saying, Does not David hide himself in the hill of Hekilah, which is before Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph. Now I will remind you that Saul had relented from pursuing David at a certain point. He uh, was kind of put in his place a little bit and he said, okay, I'm sorry, David, and I'm going to let you live. But now Saul relapses. He, his obsession gets the best of him again. And so he had 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul pitched in the hill of Hekilah, which is before Jeshimon, by the way. But David abode in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness. David, therefore, sent out spies and understood that Saul was come in very deed. Is this really happening? And so David arose and came to the place where Saul had pitched. And David beheld the place where Saul laid. And Abner, the son of Ner, the captain of his host, and Saul laid in the trench, and the people pitched around about him. Then answered David, and said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, the brother of Joab, 
saying, who will go down with me to Saul, to confront Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul laid sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck in the ground at his bolster. But Abner and the people laid around him. And Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, let me smite him, I pray you, with the spear even to the earth at once, and I will not hit him the second time. I won't have to hit him twice. Just give me one shot, David, please. This is it. And David said to Abishai, destroy him not. For who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord will smite him. Or his day will come to die. Maybe he's going to live out his days and die of natural causes at an old age. Or he'll descend into battle and die. Maybe some other means of death will happen to him. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. So David has learned, okay? He just had a a thing in the last chapter where he almost took the life of a man who had offended him. And he learned in that, God, fight your battles. Don't fight your own battles. Let God deal with it. But David said, I pray thee, take now the spear that is at his bolster, at his side, and the cruise of water, take his water bottle, and let's go. So David took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster, and they got them away. And no man saw it or knew it, neither awaked, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. Then David went over to the top of the other side and stood on top of the hill afar off, a great space being between them. And David cried to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Answerest thou not, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who? Who? Who are, who are you that cries after the king? And David said to Abner, Art not thou a valiant man? And who is like to you in Israel? Why then have you not kept your lord the king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing is not good that you have done. As the Lord lives, you are worthy to die because you have not kept your master, the Lord's anointed. You are sleeping on the job. You almost cost the life of the king. And now see where the king's spear is and the cruise of water that was at his side. And Saul knew David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son, David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, David did, wherefore doth my Lord thus pursue after his servant? For what have I done or what evil is in my hand? Now, therefore, I pray thee, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, then let him accept an offering. Let's do this in the temple before the priest mediation. But if they be the children of men, if this is the result of somebody slandering me or assassinating my character before you, gossiping, saying that I'm pursuing you, he says, then let them Be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel is come out to seek a flea 
as when does hunt a, one does hunt a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no longer do you harm. He has said this before. Because my soul was precious in your eyes this day. He has said this before. Behold, I have played the fool and I have erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Behold the king's spear and let one of the young men come over and fetch it. The Lord render to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness for the Lord delivered you into my hand today. But I would not stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as your life was much set by this day in my eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord, and let, them deliver, or let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. You shall both do great things and also shall still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Now, four more verses. And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in the coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. So David arose and passed over with the 600 men that were with him to Achish, the son of Maoch, king of Gath. Not the first time David has gone to Goliath's old boss. And David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's wife, or ex-wife at this point, widowed wife. And it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath and he sought him no more again. David's defection, David's desire was fulfilled. Saul no longer seeking after David. A little under a week ago, I did a job where I had to put a new door in an old crooked house. And one of my daughters, in fact, my oldest daughter, she had asked me the day before what I was doing the next day, and I, I perceived that she wanted some daddy time, and I did have a job, so I said, I'm working, but do you want to come? And I wasn't expecting her to say yes, but she did. And so she came with me, and uh, we did this thing together, and it was tedious, and it was uh, interesting, but I kept saying to her the whole time, I said, but you watch, but you watch, but you watch. It's going to look perfect when it's done. And so we did it, and it came out, and the whole thing. And when we were finished, we were talking, and she said to me, she said, how did you learn to do this? You know, and, and it was a very interesting question. It was like, well, I've been living with you for like, how old are you now? You know, like, how did I learn to do this? And, you know, and, and I started to think about it. Well, it wasn't from my dad. You know, like usually you say, well, my father and my brother and the family trade, you know. No, 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 it, it wasn't, okay? Uh, they don't do that. My dad has done a lot of good for me, but he did not teach me how to work with my hands. That was not one of the things I inherited uh, from him. And so I started to think about this. I'm like, well, how did I end up in this whole thing? And I said to her this, I said, you know, it's interesting that you asked. I said, but I remember a, a specific time when I was 10 years old and I had this CD that I really wanted to listen to. And I remember it, it was an Elton John's greatest hit CD. 
all right? And there was like one or two songs on it that I really liked. I just liked his voice and wanted to listen to it, but we didn't have a CD player. And the reason was because, you know, among other things, my dad, he, he kind of like is about 10 years behind the latest technology. So he still had eight tracks when CD players came out. And so I didn't think we actually had one. And so I asked him, and I said, Dad, why don't we have a CD player? And he said, well, we actually do. He goes, it's in the, you know, the stereo case, but it's broken. It hasn't worked for a long time. And it was one, I don't know if they even make them anymore, but it had like magazines where you'd put like six discs in it, and then it would cycle through the whole things. And he said, it just doesn't work. And so I was like, wow, interesting. We have a CD player. I'm 10 years old. You know, okay. So I remember that there was a day that I was home and he wasn't. And I don't remember my mom being there either, but I was very young. So maybe she was, and I, I don't remember all the details. It was fuzzy. But I, mean, I really wanted to listen to the CD, and this, this, this something came over me, and I thought, I'm going to fix the CD player. And I remember taking it out, unplugging all the wires, pulling it out of the thing, getting a little screwdriver from my dad's workbench, pulling the screws off the case, opening the thing up, looking inside and going like, Oh my goodness, what in the world did I just get myself into? But I thought, well, it's a broken CD player. The worst case scenario, I put the case back on, put it in the case, and nobody knows what happened. So I started taking the thing apart. I started just pulling things out and unscrewing things and trying to remember where things went. And then I got into this thing a little ways, and I thought, I have no idea what I'm doing right now. I, I don't even know what to look for, you know? So I thought, I better stop. I'm digging a hole here. So I start plugging everything back, putting all the screws back in, put the case back on, put it all back, hooked it up, and would you believe the thing worked? It actually worked, you know, and, and it never broke again. It worked forever. And, and I remember my parents going, like, what happened to that? And I said, I fixed it. <laughs> like, you did what? Like, you're like Kevin from Home Alone. Like, what do you mean you fixed the CD player? And, like, I don't even know what I did. But, but here's what I did. And I guess that was a long story to lead into it. But I just simply had the courage to go in and try something, even though I had no idea what I was doing. It was just courage. And so I'm telling this story to my daughter, and I just said, I don't really know the, the, the play-by-play of how I learned to do all this, but I really think what it comes down to is just having the courage to try. Have the courage to try to fix a broken car. Have the courage to try to hang kitchen cabinets. Have the courage to try. Just try it because you might find that you can do it and it'll strengthen you to have more courage to do other things in the future. And so I say that to say this, is that there are not many more powerful forces in the universe than just plain courage. And so you go in the dictionary and you look at, well, what exactly is courage? And Webster defines it this way, okay? He calls it mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. Definition B, the ability to do something that frightens one. I'm afraid of it, but I'm still going to do it. That's courage. And then number three, strength in the face of grief or pain. That is, there's an opposing force that's telling me to sit down, but there's a stronger force within that's telling me to stand up anyway. The Bible dictionary defines courage like this, to be determined to strengthen oneself to persist. And so we all understand courage because it's common. It's something that we know about, okay? Courage is very much linked to faith. It's not the same exact thing as faith, but it's a specific form of faith, okay? Courage is faith to embrace, face, 
or do something that you are afraid of or unsure about, that you are under-equipped for, or that you feel undersized for. At the cost, and there's a cost involved, it's what makes it courage, of either commitment, personal sacrifice, or the risk of failure, my well-being, or my safety. And so there is action associated with courage, and it's an action that's connected to faith. Okay, Hebrews 11.6, it's a verse that we're familiar with. It says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And I believe that the faith it's talking about there is not simply a mental assent to believe something in my mind, but it's a faith that acts on what I believe. It rises up with courage and it does something, okay? And somewhere in faith, courage is an essential. It takes courage to accept Christ in your life. I mean, just think about what it cost you when you said yes to Jesus. I was thinking after last week's study about Abigail, and Abigail said yes to David, and you, and you just think, okay, well, Abigail, we know the end of the story. She became a queen, but she wasn't a queen when she followed David. When she first followed David, she left a wealthy inheritance. She left a, a thriving position, and now the jerk that she was married to is dead, and that makes her the one who's in charge of it all. And she left all of it and followed David. That was courageous, she didn't know what was going to come of that. And the same for us. When we follow Christ, it cost us something. We lost friends. We were under the reproach of family members. It was a change of lifestyle. We had to go through withdrawal of the things that we were living on that were contrary to what God wants for our lives. That takes courage. It takes courage for a Christian to follow the will of God for their life to stay when, when we want to go, or to go when we want to stay, to resist when we want to embrace, and to embrace when we want to resist, to love when it's hard to love. It's hard, and it takes courage to stand up and do what God asks us to do. It takes courage to persist in a calling, or in a season, or in a struggle that we're going through, when everything but God tells us to sit down or quit, but God inside says, no, stand up and go. It takes courage for us to do it, okay? Courage is a very powerful force. If it wasn't for courage, the children of Israel would never have entered into the promised land. If they never entered in the promised land, we would not have a Bible. We would not have the full truth and revelation of God if they hadn't had the courage to do something that they felt undersized and under-equipped to do. If Israel didn't have courage, I'm sorry, if Esther didn't have courage in the days of the captivity, when there was a plot to genocidally wipe out the entire nation, if Esther hadn't had the courage to go and stand before the king, then Israel would have been wiped out. Jesus never would have come. If Jesus hadn't had courage in the Garden of Gethsemane, when every force in heaven and inside of him didn't want to embrace the cross, but yet the Father's will was primal, and if he didn't have the courage to stand up against those primal forces or those opposing forces, then you and I wouldn't be saved if it wasn't for the courage of Jesus himself. The early church fathers who spilled their blood to deepen the roots of the church and advance the kingdom of God on earth were standing on their shoulders. And the church is still alive and thriving today because of the courage of those that wouldn't back down 
when people tried to cause them to. In the United States of America, if it wasn't for the courage of people that fought for independence, you and I wouldn't know the freedoms that we know. We wouldn't be enjoying the life that we we enjoy, and the world wouldn't have the level of industry and development and technology that it does. All of that is the result of courage that people exercised at a certain point in history when it would have been easier not to fight. Courage is a powerful thing. In your own life, you can probably think of right now two or three times somewhere along the way where you did something or you stepped out in something or made a decision that was very hard to make and there was a lot of risk and a lot of fear and it took a lot of courage. But you look back on those moments where there was courage and you say, I would not be here I would not have this. I would not be who I am today if I hadn't had the courage in those moments to do it. Courage is a powerful thing. Now, there is an almost equally powerful force that also exists within the universe that undoes everything that courage does. It has a very technical and scientific name. It's Discouragement. Discouragement. And discouragement is the exact opposite of courage, and it does the exact opposite thing that courage does. If courage stands up in the face of adversity, discouragement sits down. If courage overcomes things that are too difficult, discouragement is overcome by things that are too difficult. It is the exact opposite of what encouragement is, okay? Now, David, whom we are following, we know him to be a very courageous man. He killed a lion, that was too big for him. A bear, that was too big for him. Goliath, that was too big for him. He's conquered difficulty upon difficulty in his life, and he is a man of great courage. And he knows in his heart that he is being asked of God to endure a great and difficult preparation, the season that he's in right now where God is doing something in his life, and he has done everything courageously. But now something happens in the text that we read tonight that lets the air out of all the courage that David has exercised thus far, and David becomes discouraged. His courage is deflated, okay? Now, again, the background, just in case you're just joining us or you you don't know the saga between David and Saul that's happened thus far, let me sum it up for you. Okay, David was brought into Saul's court. Saul became jealous. He tried to kill David. David was deflated. David was then restored. He was brought back. Saul tried to kill him again. David left. Then David was restored because of the intercession of Jonathan, Saul's son. Then Saul got jealous and tried to kill David again. This time David was banished and he lost everything that he had. But God was with David and God raised David up from that place that he was at Okay, then Saul chased David and tried to kill him again. But David spared Saul's life in a moment of providence, and Saul saw that David wasn't actually a threat to him. And so David, I mean, Saul wept and cried and said, I'm so sorry, David. And he went home, and David again was living in peace, thinking, oh, finally, I'm not going to be killed by Saul. 
And then we get to the text that we read tonight, where David thinks this is finally over, and he finds out Saul has come again to seek his life. Oh my goodness. I love the words we read them in verse 4 of chapter 26. It says that David sent spies to go and see if Saul has actually come in very deed. Did you catch that? In the language, you hear in David's heart and in his voice, he's going, is this really happening? Is Saul, is this really still happening? Because I thought we were done with this. Anybody ever said that before? Anybody, you ever have a situation in your life where where something happened and you said, "I, I thought we were done with this. Like, is this really still happening right now? I just found another bag of weed in my teenager's jacket pocket. I, I thought we were done with this. Is this, that, that, I'm not talking about me, okay? That didn't happen to me. I have, I have other problems, you know, and so do my kids. That's not one of them, but, but, but I know that's a real thing. That happens, okay? I, I just found another credit card that was opened up in my spouse's name. A secret one. I thought we were done with this. I just found a- another empty bottle in my husband's car. I thought we were done with this. I thought it was over already. My spouse just threw my sins up in my face again. I thought we were done with this. I, I-, I just had another grievance filed against me by a lazy subordinate at work because of a report that I wrote on them. I thought we were done with this. Is this really still happening now? And here's David. Saul is chasing me again? I thought we were done with this. Well, David, he wasn't a man to cower in the face of it. He deals with it in the moment. He says, all right, who's going to come with me? Let's go deal with this. Let's go confront. I'm not going to cower. I'm not going to run. Let's go down into the camp. Let's face him. Let's see what happens. And so you guys read it with me. David goes down. Everybody's deeply sleeping because God put Ambien in their water that night. (laughs) And David takes the spear. He takes the water. He goes back across the other side. He shouts over. He confronts Abner. God shakes him awake. You know, they they have this thing and Saul has to relent again. And you think, okay, David, you know, you kind of handled that well. You didn't hurt him. You didn't kill him when you had the opportunity to. You proved that you weren't against him. You did everything right. And, And we would all say amen to the way David handled it. God would say amen to the way David handled it. But something happened in David at this point where he thought, I just can't do this again. I can't do this anymore. Because no matter how many times I spare his life, no matter how many times I show my integrity, no matter how many times I do it right before God, he just keeps coming. The trouble keeps coming. The trials keep coming. And he says, I just don't want to do this anymore. And so he says, I'm done. I just need to escape. And that's what it says two times in verse one of chapter 27. We read it. He said, nothing would be better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. I'm going to leave the borders of where I am right now. And if I leave the borders of the land, then maybe I can leave the battle that I'm facing. I just need an escape. If I, if I leave the marriage, then I don't have to deal 
with the fight anymore. If I just get outside of where this conflict is happening, then I can escape the pressure and the difficulty of it. If I just give into the temptation that it seems like I'm fighting and battling all the time, if I just give into that temptation, then I will no longer feel the pain of resisting it or the shame of violating it when I fail. I'll just give into it. Then, then there's no more fight. I don't have to deal with the pain anymore. If I leave fellowship with God, then I don't have to climb and resist and keep fighting. It just seems like the devil has been relentless ever since I gave my life to Jesus. And if I just give into not walking with Jesus, then I don't have to feel the pain of this climb and this fight and this resistance anymore. And that's what David is kind of feeling right now. He's like, I am done. I I know the will of God. I know purpose and plan. I know the sufferings aren't worthy to be compared with the glory. I know the word and the scriptures and the promises, and I know the destiny, but I just need an escape. I just can't do this anymore. And David becomes discouraged, and in his discouragement, he's deflated, and David checks out. And you know what? It worked. Because it tells us in verse 4, it says that Saul sought him no more. David got the relief that David was seeking by checking out of the borders, the boundaries, the battle that God had put him in and called him into for this season. But you know what? It worked, but it didn't work. Because God's not done with David, and David's not done with God. There's more that's got to be done. And so though David, in discouragement, checks out, David is just delaying or complicating or exacerbating what he's going to go through to get where God is bringing him because God's not going to give up on David. There's a couple of things about David's discouragement. You know, discouragement is so powerful. These stories can be so stupid, but sometimes they're so helpful, you know, because they're not even real, you know, but there was this uh, story where, where Satan had this garage sale and he was selling all of his tools. Like he was just like, liquidating. And so, so he was selling all the things that he uses to destroy people's lives. And everybody was gathered around and like admiring all these things. And they're like, what's that one? And he's like, oh, that's alcoholism. He's like, that's great. I can kill lives with that. Like, what's that over there? Oh, that's, that's lust and adultery. And I'm, that's such a powerful thing. The highest bidder, what is it? And there was somebody standing there at the table and they looked over and off in the corner underneath a sheet, there was this old dusty thing that was not out in the open and, and it, would, it looked like it was kind of concealed. And someone pointed over and said, what's that? What's that? And he said, oh, he goes, that's nothing. That's nothing. That's not for sale. No, no. What is it? What is it? And he just finally just goes, oh, he goes, I'll never get rid of that. He said, that's the most powerful, powerful thing that I have in all of my arsenal. It's leaps and bounds above every other tool that I have. And I'll tell you why. Because if I can use that tool successfully in somebody's life, then it will pry open the door for me to use any other tool I want without limit. I can do whatever I want. What is it? What is it? We'll give you any. What is it? And he said, oh, well, it's not for sale, but I'll tell you what it is. It's discouragement. If I can lodge this into somebody's heart, oh, the things that I can get them to do, the things that I can wreak havoc on in their life, oh, if I can just use that tool. Well, anyways, back to, you know, back to our study, you know, but it just shows you the power of discouragement. What happens to David when he checks out because of discouragement? Well, the first thing that we notice, and it's in the the first four verses that we read, it says that David went to, to Gath. He went to the Philistines. He went outside the borders of Israel. He defected to the enemy 
And it tells us that his men and his wives went with him. And you've got to understand that if you defect, if you quit, if you sit down when you still need to stand, it isn't just you that will feel the ramifications or the consequences or are affected by the decisions that you make. The decisions that we make are intricately linked to the other people in our lives. And David made a decision and he brought everyone he was linked with into that decision also. And they will also feel the effects of it. Absolutely, you can be certain of it, okay? David gave up for this moment, all right? What else? He gets immediate relief. But then notice with me in verse five, what it says. It says that David said to Achish, Achish, the king of the Philistines, if I have now found grace in your eyes, He says, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should thy servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Wherefore, Ziklag pertains to the kings of Judah to this day. And the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was a full year and four months. So he gets a year and four months of relief from Saul. But watch Watch this. And David and his men went up and they invaded the Geshurites and the Gezerites and the Amalekites for those nations were of old the inhabitants of the land as you go to Shur even to the land of Egypt. And David smote the land and left neither man or woman alive and took away the sheep, the ox, the asses, the camels, the apparel, the clothes. He opens an eBay store. So he's getting a little wealthy here. And he returned and he came to Achish. And Achish said, where have you made a road today? And David said, against the south of Judah and against the south of the Jeremielites and against the south of the Kenites. And David saved neither man nor woman alive to bring tidings to Gath, saying, lest they should tell on us, saying, so did David and and so will be his manner all the while he dwells in the country of the Philistines. Watch this. And Achish believed David, saying, he has made his people, Israel, utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. You say, well, what's going on here? Here's what's going on. David asked for this village. He says, give me a place where you can call home base. And so Gath, uh, Achish gives him this little city of Ziklag way down in the south. It's a distance away from where the palace was. And every single day, David was going in with his men and they were killing Philistines and Amalekites and, you know, the enemies of Israel, those that had no right and no place in the land. They were literally killing Achish's people. Okay, but then David would go back to Achish and Achish would say, what'd you do today, David? And David would fill out his time card and he would say, oh, I killed some Israelites. I went into the south of Judah. I'm so sick of Saul. I hate his guts. The people have done nothing for me. So I've been just destroying them. And Achish is like, match my boy. Good boy. He says, good, good job. And it says that he believed him. So, so here's what's going on. David begins living a lie. In order for David to give in to the pressure of not feeling Saul's presence in his life, he has to start living a lifestyle that is living a lie. He's got to be two different people. He's a sinner by day and a saint by night. He's 
not the David that we know. He's lying. Now you say, well, the ends justify the means. He's actually killing the enemies of God. No, no, David's living a lie. And he's making this man think that he's actually serving him faithfully. And this man thinks that he, and this is part of the danger, is that he is ensnaring David. Did you catch that at the end of verse 12? He said, he will be my servant forever. And any time you enter into Satan's borders for the sake of a little bit of relief, know that that is his agenda for you and he will be moving you in that direction. He is not about your freedom. He is not about your destiny. You are literally, literally giving yourself to something lesser than what God made you for. And the devil is pleased to give it to you. And that's exactly what is being brought up around David right now, okay? He, he's not going to uh, get away with this whole thing, first of all, okay? But, but if he gives into it, he's going to get locked into a lesser place. He's living a lie. He's got to cover his tracks. He feels relief, okay? But mm, watch this. It says in chapter 28, because all of a sudden now something happens and David's going to get caught. He's going to get found out. It says, it came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, know thou assuredly that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men, and you'll fight against Israel. And David said to Achish, now this is where David calls the bluff and says, okay, I can't come clean, so I got to go deeper. He says, surely you will know what your servant can do. I'll show you how good of a warrior I am as we go fight against my people. And Achish said to David, therefore will I make you the keeper of my head forever. You go out and do this, David, then I will give you the highest position you can have in my kingdom. You'll be my bodyguard personally, this whole thing. I want you to catch this, okay? And then we're going to skip the rest of the chapter for now. We'll probably come back to it next week because it's very interesting, but it's kind of a different theme than what we're talking about tonight. But here's what's going on right now and that you got to understand listen to me, okay, discouraged person, listen to me, is that while David was spending a year and four months feeling relief from the pressure of preparation, God was still felling dominoes that would lead to David's ultimate deliverance. In other words, listen, listen, the Philistines are now planning a war against Israel. And guess what's going to happen in that war? Saul is going to die, which is the relief and the ultimate destiny that's headed or that David is headed for. Okay. So while you are out distracted because of your discouragement and you're doing nothing, God is still moving behind the scenes, but you're on the wrong side of the place you're supposed to be. You're not in position for the thing to happen that you've been waiting for to happen because you were discouraged and you checked out. That's the problem with discouragement and with checking out in the midst of the discouragement, okay? So chapter 28, the rest of it, we'll look at it next week. It all has to do with Saul going to a witch because he's not hearing from God and he wants to know how to fight and what to do because he finds himself, I've spent all my time chasing David. I don't know how to fight a war. What are we going to do? And, you know, the witch ultimately says, you're going to die. We'll get to all that, you know, the whole thing. All right. But David now is in a place where he's going to have to go fight 
on behalf of Achish. So look at chapter 29 and watch this. It says, now the Philistines gathered together all the armies to Aphek and the Israelites pitched by a fountain, which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men passed on in the rear reward with Achish. So there's a parade now. You know how like you see like sometimes you see like the Chinese military or Iran, they're all like walking in step and they're like parading their missiles down the road and there's this big pomp. Well, here's like now the Philistines are doing that and everybody's marching and all the bands one by one. And all of a sudden there's like this band of Hebrews. And David is there with his men, and it's kind of like this big record scratch because everybody's looking on going like, wait a minute, Philistines, 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 Israelites. And David's there marching with them. And so verse 3, the princes of the Philistines asked, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, well, isn't this David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, which has been with me these days or these years, and I have found no fault in him since he fell unto me unto this day. Like David's good. He's killing Israelites all the time. He's no worry. And the princes of the Philistines were wroth with him. And the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow go home that he may go again to his place, which, which you've appointed him. And let him not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he be an adversary to us, for wherewith should he reconcile himself to his master? Should it not be with the heads of these men? You're, you're, you're literally putting, like, you're giving him an opportunity to, to, like, fix things. Like, don't do that. Like, you're stupid. Is not this David, of whom they sang one to another in dances, saying Saul slew his thousands and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, well, surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright in your going out and your coming in. No, he hasn't. He's a liar. He, he has not been upright. He's not been honest with you. He goes, with me in the host is good in my sight, for I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming unto me unto this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's favor you not. That's that talk, you know, when you're called into the boss's office and he says, it's not you. Okay, it's, I find no fault with your work, but the upper management, they just, they don't like you for some reason. I've got to let you go. That's the talk David is getting right now. Wherefore, return and go in peace that you displease not the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? And what, what have you found in your servant so long as I've been with you unto this day that I may not go fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? This is interesting how deceived you can get. Like David's like, no, no, I want to do this. I, I want to go and, and fight. And Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are good in my sight. As an angel of God, notwithstanding the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Wherefore now rise up early in the morning with your master's servants that are come with you. And as soon as you be up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose up early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Okay, so here's what happens here is that God in his mercy providentially spares David from having to fight against his own people. God in his mercy keeps David from being ultimately humiliated in the moment of having to go and fight against his own people. God providentially keeps David from having this whole thing blow up in his face. God, in his mercy, stops the whole thing. And this is wonderful mercy on behalf of God. Now, let me say this, okay, here. 
is, is because you think, okay, well, doesn't this kind of tell me that I can do whatever I want and I can just check out for a year and four months and God's just going to, you know, put it all under the rug and it, it won't really matter. Like, so I lost a year walking with God. At least I felt good for a year, you know, this whole thing. is now worse. No, no, I want you to understand something about why God did this for David, okay? Because he didn't have to. It could have all blown up in his face and, and David's not going to get away with it. We'll see that in a second. All right, but why is this? Okay, because David did not stop loving God. David didn't do this because he was sick of God or because he wanted a break from God. David wrote Psalms this whole time. David, David wasn't out of fellowship with God. David was discouraged because of his situation. Saul turned his back on God. Do you see the difference? Because Saul was gone. He was in left field, this whole thing. God didn't help Saul to get out of, out of the issue. Saul left God. David didn't leave God. David left his situation. He didn't like the situation. God spared him, but watch this because now the hammer is going to fall. You cannot get away with it. All right, watch this. Chapter 30, verse one. It says that it came to pass that when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, so they've been gone for two days, they come back the third that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire. So one of the bands that David had been fighting against, they come in, they burn the city, and it says that they took the women captives that were therein. They didn't kill any, either small or great, but they carried them away and they went on their way. So they became kidnapped, spoiled from the battle. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. Now think about it for a minute. When did this start? This started way back when David said in his heart that I will one day perish by the hand of Saul. And he said this. He said, there is nothing better for me than that I should escape. Now, this was the outcome of the path that David stepped on that day when he said, there's nothing better for me. Now he's standing in a pile of ashes and everything he owns has been taken from him. And his home and his village is burned down. His wives, his men's wives, and all of their kids and substance have been carried away by a raiding band. Was it better for David was there nothing better for him than that he should escape for a while? Just check out for a little bit. No, <laughs> absolutely not. And I tell you this, anytime you check out of the will of God or the plan of God or the preparation of God or the place that God has you in because you want a little relief, I promise you that you will come to the point after agonizing over the fact that you're living a lie over every day having to look people in the face that know that you're not where you're supposed to be and doing what you're supposed to be or acting like who you're supposed to be or who you are. After all of that, you will have a train wreck in your life. It will happen every time because God is not gonna let you get away with it. Doesn't mean God doesn't love you. God's not done here. And it's gonna work out for David, all right? 
But David is in a point where he is completely in despair in this, and he has no hope at all. But watch what happens next. Verse 6. It says that David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved in every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. David, who was standing there in this rubble because he had become discouraged. He had become discouraged because his situation wasn't what he wanted it to be. He had become discouraged because of the difficulty of the days that he was living in. He had been discouraged because it seemed like every step he took forward was then followed by two steps he had to take backwards. He was discouraged because things weren't happening fast enough. Now he's in a place where he is in despair and he has nothing to encourage him in the outward. I mean, think about it. What can David hope in at this point? Can he hope in his reputation? No, it's shot. Can he hope in his substance and his wealth? No, it's all been taken from him. Everything he's earned has been taken. It's gone at this point. Can he put his hope in his wives that he took? Can't, they're gone. Every, there is nothing for David to take open. So David has two choices. Well, I can either just die right now by the hand of my men, or I can put my hope in the one thing that I have left. And I can find courage in a well that I stopped looking to for courage a long time ago. And it says that David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. Not anything else at this point. There is nothing else for him to encourage himself in. He is humiliated. He is ashamed because of the things that he has done. And at this point, David experiences the greatest victory that he will experience in his life. Bigger than Goliath, bigger than Saul, bigger than overcoming everything else. And it is that his source of encouragement was shifted from anything else that he would be drawing from, and it was placed upon the one thing that would never fail. And that was the person of God himself. I mean, just think about it. What was David encouraged by? What was the source of David's courage before all this? His pursuits, his destiny. Oh, maybe I'll be king one day. I'll be courageous because I can be king. His reputation, his legacy, who he would be remembered as, his possessions, the end of his struggle, Saul one day dying, all of those things were encouraging to David at some point, but those were all fragile wells. And now David is brought to the place where he puts his courage in the one thing that can actually sustain him. And I ask you this question as we draw close to a close. What is it that you are putting your courage in? What is the well that you draw your courage from? Because people draw courage from faulty wells all the time. Some people from the well of, well, someday, someday my marriage will be good. Someday my husband or my wife will love me or treat me right. Someday it's going to happen. And I'm just going to be courageous right now. And I'm going to stand up hoping that this is going to work out one day. Someday my kids will be stable. 
And we'll look back at these days and laugh at how crazy they were and how crazy our house was in this season. Someday it's going to happen. Someday I'm going to have money. Someday I'm not going to be wondering which bill I should pay and trying to figure it out. Someday it's going to happen. Let me tell you this. I promise you someday you're right. All those things probably will happen. You will probably get there if you keep going. But can I tell you this also? Is that when you get there, it's not going to be what you thought? You're going to have the thing that you hope for, but you're going to have a whole host of other problems that you didn't see coming because that's what this life does. This life always gives you a backhand. Do you understand? There's always another side to it, things that you didn't foresee. So now you have money, but you're old and you're a cheapskate and you don't enjoy it. And now you're sick and your health isn't there. And so you don't care about money now because you just want to feel okay. So what's your hope in now? See, there's only one thing, one thing that ultimately gives hope. And that is God himself. That's why it says that David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. He found strength, resolve. The word encourage there that's used in verse six, it's the Hebrew word shazak. It's a great word, isn't it? And it means to strengthen, to resolve, and to grow rigid. Here's what David did that day, is that he made a decision that he was going to put his hope in God and God only. And he had nothing else to hope in. All of the rest was gone. Well, what does it mean to put your hope in the Lord, your God? It means to put your hope in who he is. Well, who is he? I'll tell you who he is, because he told us who he is. He declared his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. It says that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's sin on three levels, iniquity, transgression, and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generations. God being clear, saying, I'm not going to let you get away with it, even though I'm going to forgive you. And David said, okay, I get it. I didn't get away with it. I'm standing in the evidence that I didn't get away with it. But I'm going to put my hope, not in who I expect God to be at this moment, which would be vengeful, withdrawn, (laughs) forsaking me, onto the next person, I'm going to put my hope in who he says he is. And he says that he's merciful. He says that he's gracious. He says that he's long-suffering. He says that he forgives. And so I'm going to own what I've done wrong right now. And I'm going to stand up, even though I'm way, 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 way undersized for what's in front of me right now. And though I've got nothing else to hope in, I'm going to put my hope in God and in God alone. And rise or fall from there, that's where I am going to live. Who is he? The New Testament calls him the God of all hope. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. That he is the God of all hope. And here's the hope that our God gives. Is that he promises that he is working all things together for our good today. Working in our behalf, what is good and excellent in spite of what we are seeing, feeling, facing, fearing, or standing on, even if it's the rubble that we caused. That he is able to work it for our good. The rest of the story is this, and you can read the rest of the chapter. 
is that David stands up and he calls for the priest and he says to the priest, he says, hey, if we go and fight against these people, are we going to find them? And the priest seeks the Lord and the Lord answers and says, yeah, you're going to find him. And David says, are, are we going to get back what we lost? And the priest says, yeah, you're going to get back what you lost. And so David says, God, get your swords. Let's go. And the 600 men that are with him, 200 of them say, we can't. We're, we're done. We're shot. We're tired. We're discouraged. We're in despair. We can't fight. I can't fight. And David says, well, who's in? 400 guys say, we're in. So David says, put your swords on. Let's go. And they go and they, they, they move in the direction. They think these guys go and they find this passed out kid on the ground. He's just dehydrated and he's laying in the sun in the desert. And David kind of gives him some water and revives him and says, who are you? And he says, I'm an Amalekite or I'm actually an Egyptian, but I was a servant of an Amalekite and we went through Ziklag. We burned it with fire. We took all their stuff. And David says, do you know where they went? He says, yeah, I know where they went. If you promise not to turn me over, I'll lead you to them. And David says, lead the way. And so David comes upon them in the evening. He sees that they're all drunk. They're parting around a big bonfire. He sees the sheep. He sees the wives tied up. He sees the kids all put in their different places. David says, come on, guys, let's go. And so they go and they fight for 24 hours from the twilight of the one day to the, the end of the next day. They go and they fight. They kill these men and they recover every last soul, every last sheep. Nothing, nothing at all was taken from them. I'll read you the verses because they're that epic. It's 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse I don't know, 18 and 19. It's going to come up on the screen anyways, but listen to what it says. It says that David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away and David rescued his two wives and there was nothing lacking to them, neither small or great, neither sons or daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. That is the God of all hope, okay? is that even if you're standing right now on a pile of rubble that you created because of decisions that you made, is that if you will let your hope be shifted and you will place it in God alone, he is able to take you from there, bring you not only back to himself, but with redirected source coming only from him, he will bring you to the place where you recover even all that you lost. The promise was given to the prophet Joel that he will restore even the years that the locust has eaten. And he is able to do it. That's what he does. Whatever God has you in right now, if it's a season of separation, if it's a season of preparation, if it's a season of suffering or silence, if it's a season of grief or pain, whatever God has you in right now, hang in it. Trust in him because there's hope in him. Do you understand? Okay, you can't see right now what God is working. You'll see it in the future. Sometimes years into the future, you'll look back and say, man, God was doing things in those days. I had no idea what he was doing. He's doing it. David was in poverty and out of poverty, God brought provision. David was in danger, and in danger, God brought safety. Abigail was married to an idiot, but God shifted things around. David was lonely. God brought him a woman, brought him two women. All these things. David couldn't see it in the moment, but you look back and you say, God, you were there. And as I look back over my life and think of the things that God has done for me, right in the middle of what I thought were the worst possible moments, God did things that I look back now and say, if that hadn't, then this wouldn't. Can anybody else say that? That's what he does. That's how good he is. But you can't see it in the moment. So what's the point? Hang in there. 
Encourage yourself in the Lord your God. Place your faith and your hope in the fact that he is the God of all hope. I close with words from Paul. It's Romans chapter 5. It's a classic passage. Paul said this. He talks about how we have this access to God. We're filled with his love in this whole thing. But he says this. He says that we glory in tribulation. That means we rejoice when trials come. Why? He says, because tribulation works patience. Patience works experience. And experience works hope. And listen, it says that hope maketh not ashamed. Now follow the progression. Trials, okay, they produce patience because you have no other choice. Patience works experience. What's experience? You start to see, wow, God came through. God worked it out. God got me through another day. God brought me over another hurdle. Experience, that's experience. Experience works hope. What's hope? Hope is the expectation that things are gonna be okay in the future. Now I have hope, and what happens when I have hope? I don't do things I'm ashamed of. Every single thing that I have done in my life that I'm ashamed of, it is somewhere in that I've lost hope. But hope maketh not ashamed. And I wonder if tonight, you're listening to my voice right now, you're hearing this message, and you're in a situation where you feel like you've lost hope. You are discouraged. Can you, from the place that you are, just believe that God is for you? Can you just believe that he's working all things together for your good right now? Can you just believe that he is the Lord, the Lord God, that he is sovereign and almighty over your situation and that he's doing something in it that one day you'll look back on and say, thank you, God, for those days. Can you just believe it? I heard a podcast recently where they were interviewing this guy who's like, I mean, he's one of those people that can just do everything and his life is just, everything is like, he, he can do whatever. And he was being asked about it. And, and the, the guy said to him, he's like, well, how did you become amazing? Like, that was the question that was put. And he said, well, it really comes down to this. He goes, when I was a little kid, he says, my dad used to say to me all the time, he used to just say, the room just got better because you walked in it. He'd say that all the time to me. The room just got better because you walked in it. And he goes, and you know what? I just believed him. And he goes, and I really think that's really the reason why I, I do what I do and why I can do what I do. And I just thought, man, our God looks at us and he says, the room just got better because you're in it. I gave the blood of my son to bring you into the room of my household because I believe that the world is a better place because you're in it. My kingdom, my house is a better place because you're in it. And if you can just believe that, then you'll never be discouraged. That's what it means to encourage yourself in the Lord your God. Can you stand with me? Father, we just pray tonight in Jesus' name. We know, Lord, that we face tribulation and trial. We know, Lord, that there's difficulty. And we also know, Lord, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us, the appearing of Jesus Christ. And so tonight, Lord, we choose as your church to declare your faithfulness. And we choose as your church to believe you, Lord, that you are working all things together for our good. And come what may, in our preparation, in our isolation, in our loneliness, in our difficulty, tonight we choose our God to believe in you and to be encouraged in you. And so right now I pray over your people. I pray that you'd pour out encouragement, that you'd pour out faith, that you'd pour out hope. 
and that you'd show yourself to be the God who can recover all. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.